with me in your Bibles, and I think we're going to have some verses up here. Okay, that's great. Um, to Genesis, let's start in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. And right after the meeting tonight, we're going to have a little family meeting. We're just going to have a discussion about uh, what our goals are here, what we'd like to do, what we feel that God is leading us to do while we're here. And we just want to invite everyone to come because we want to get your feedback. We want to hear from you. We want to talk about uh, meeting times. We want to talk about some activities, some things that we got planned. And generally, I don't know about in Texas, but I know on the East Coast, uh, when July and August come, people are just kind of shifting to spiritual neutral. And uh, they just kind of float uh, in the direction of the uh, least resistance. And uh, so I understand a lot of people are going to be on vacation, traveling. So we're easy with that. We're not going to be stressing about that. But we are going to be meeting during the, during the summer. So we just definitely want to encourage you to come out and just be a part of this exciting new thing. So in Hebrews chapter 11, something that I've been thinking about this past week regarding probably some of the most amazing verses in the Bible, and I'm just amazed that we don't hear more messages preached on these verses. And when you look at what's actually happening in the book of Genesis, which we know is the book of beginnings, Genesis is like the roots, it's like the root of all the Bible. This is where all of the seed thoughts, the first mentions, if you studied hermeneutics, where things are mentioned for the first time with great meaning. And so we see a lot of first things happening in the book of Genesis. We're going to turn there in a moment. But Hebrews chapter 11 is that amazing chapter on faith. And we read these chapters, we read this chapter, and we read, we read a lot of names, don't we? We see some amazing people in there. And we think, wow, you know, that's an amazing hall of fame. You know, you could go to a museum. I think it's in New York City where they have, um, just in, in Philadelphia, they have some amazing museums of sport uh, sport, sport athletes that have attained great levels of notoriety and fame because of things that they've done and the records that they've set. But in Hebrews chapter 11, the Hebrews chapter 11 is not a chapter about people that have attained. It's not a chapter about people that have achieved. Uh, we see in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, uh, if you do a little research, and I like research, when you research the names of some of these people in this chapter, it gets a little awkward, I think. You look at some of the, I mean, all of these men in, these, in this chapter, you see, wow, these guys have really, really not done well all their life. And some of them have, have made some amazing mistakes. So why are they in the book of Hebrews in that famous chapter of faith? Well, I think it's because that in Romans chapter 4, that faith in the promise of God always requires God's grace. And to walk by faith, we need to be functioning in the grace of God, which is that unmerited, unattainable, unachievable favor in our life. And I want to talk about just the first character that we read in Hebrews chapter 11. And this is amazing because, again, this is the first mention. So I think that in the Greek language, and in the Bible, when you ever, whenever you see a list, you can be sure that in the list, the, the order of it is very pertinent. And who is the first person mentioned in this list? Well, we read in verse 3, 
Let's start in verse 3. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. That's why it's so hard for evolutionists to admit that there is a creator and that this world was created. Because if they were to say that this was created by creative, creative design, by divine de- design, then they would have to admit that the word of God is all author- has all authority and that there is a creator. And so we know that the word of God, and I like how that begins, everything begins in the word of God, in the word of promise, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. And I like that because whenever we look at the things that we can see in our life, the tragedies, this, just, this event just happened in Dallas where we see uh, the, the deaths of multiple officers and just the, the unimaginable, unreasonable, un- illogical uh, evil that is in men's heart inherently. And when we see these things, we have to understand that there's something invisible behind it. And we cannot really address society's problems, our problems in our culture, issues in our families, and maybe things that we're struggling in our personal life with by things by sight alone. But there is always something that is invisible behind it. And that's not the message tonight, so I want to continue here. Verse 4, by faith, Abel. Abel. This is the man I want to talk about tonight. This amazing guy, Abel. He's an amazing guy that we don't hear very much about. His name, Abel, actually means just a breath in the Hebrew, just a vapor. Does it sound familiar? Who said it? Shakespeare said it, right? And also the Apostle James, that we're just a vapor. Our life is just a vapor, and his life also was just a vapor. Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. So what's happening here is, is that Abel, we're going to read the story in a moment, offers a sacrifice that is more excellent than his brother's sacrifice, Cain. And when he offered that sacrifice, he obtained a witness or proof that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, which being dead still speaks. I heard, um, I read today a... One commentator said that Abel is one of the greatest preachers today because though he's dead, he still speaks. And his blood was shed in great injustice. And his blood still cries out. And his message still speaks. And what was his message? His message was the sacrifice that he gave. And what was the sacrifice that Abel gave? And what was that sacrifice that made him righteous? And how does that apply to us today? Let's turn to uh, Genesis chapter 4 verse 1, and we'll talk about this story here about Cain and Abel, a story that maybe we've heard maybe one million times. If you've been to Sunday school, you've heard Cain kills Abel and how bad Cain was. And I think sometimes when we, like some of us, like myself, that grew up in a church where we hear the Sunday school lessons over and over and over, uh, we can become an adult and become very familiar with those things and actually begin to miss some of the deeper meaning of the, the stories. And so let's look at verse, verse 1. Now, Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. Now, this is the first born human being on the planet. And remember the story of Adam and Eve, of course. They were in paradise. They were in a utopia. 
They were in a sinless environment. Imagine that. They were in a, an environment where there was nothing wrong. The only thing that existed there was human needs. They were human beings and they had needs. Though they had not yet had a fallen nature, they had a nature that was susceptible to need and necessity. And we today feel that today, don't we? And so in Adam and Eve, we know the story, they fail. And through a woman, paradise is lost. But just before they're, they're kicked out of the garden, God gives them this incredible, incredible promise that though paradise was lost through the, through the woman Eve, that God would, through a woman, bring in a savior that would conquer and would crush the head of the serpent that deceived mankind. Isn't that beautiful? And I was thinking this afternoon, I think that the devil hates women maybe more than men. I, I can't prove it. But I think that, and this is my theory, is that, is that and, and don't get me wrong, this is not a new theology I'm teaching, but it's just a thought, that who does the devil go after in the garden? Goes after the woman. And he goes after her because there's something about her and her submission and her glorious creation that is really, that glorifies God, that reveals the righteousness of God. So he goes after her. Think about some of the craziest religions in the world today and how destructive they are and how they target women and how they debase women and how women are just lowered to this place of just a, maybe just a degree above an animal. This is demonic. Think of the way in our natural, in our society today, how women are portrayed as just objects of enjoyment and other things. And this is really a demonic perspective of what God's picture of what a true woman should look like. Eve here has just been with her husband kicked out of the garden. And this is a tragic event. This is unbelievable. We cannot even maybe even fathom what this actually was. Here is Adam and Eve being kicked out of their home. I mean, have you ever been kicked out of your home? Have you ever been asked to leave? Have you been evicted? Have you ever been told you cannot come here anymore? You cannot live here. In the Ukraine, as you may have heard, where my wife and I were missionaries, in the eastern part, near the Ukrainian, near the Russian border, uh, the, their troops have, there, there's been a war, and there's been an invasion there. And uh, we have friends. We were going to actually do a church plant in that eastern part of Ukraine in a city called Lugansk. And there was a family that was living there. And... When the troops came in and invaded, and this was just a couple years ago, uh, they were forced from their homes and they fled as refugees to east to western Ukraine. The son of this family uh, went recently to go back to gather things from the home that they had to suddenly leave. And when he arrived to that house, uh, he discovered that the house was filled with these rebel soldiers uh, that uh, as he approached the door, they came out and met him in the yard, and they said, what are you doing here? He goes, this is my home. <laughs> this is where we live. <laughs> we live here. And he goes, no, this is not your home anymore. And actually, they had converted his home into some kind of a military base. Uh, they were full of soldiers. He said, I just came to get a couple things. He goes, no, you have to leave. If you don't leave, we're going to shoot you. And he was kicked off his own property, property that they had bought, property that they had built on. 
And I, you can imagine what Adam and Eve are uh, dealing with in their mind. They have just been kicked out of the utopia. And they are going through all of those things that an individual goes through when they experience rejection. But before that it happens, something very redemptive happened. God gave a promise that through the woman, through the woman, the seed would come of the Savior that would destroy and crush the, the, the head of the serpent. And it's interesting to note that whenever, before God administers dis- discipline or chastisement in a person's life, he always gives a great promise. Isn't that amazing? Punishment is something that's administered with no hope and with no promise. Divine discipline is something that's administered when there's a promise and when there's hope. And whenever God deals with us, he's not punishing us, but he is just dealing with us because there's something more beautiful down the road for us. And so what happens is, is that Cain is born. What is Cain represent? Well, in Eve's mind, and if you're a mother, you're probably going to understand maybe this thinking better than me. <laughs> but in Eve's mind, he ha- she has this thought, wow, I'm going to give birth to a redeemer, to someone who is going to fix this whole mess. In her mind, she's thinking, I'm going to bear a child, because that's how she heard the, uh, the promise. So she becomes pregnant with Cain and she gives birth and she names him Cain, which actually means in the original language, uh, I have gotten from the Lord or I have achieved or, or another way to translate it, or he is here. And so there was this great hope and expectation in Cain. Cain was most maybe, I'm just assuming here, that Cain would be in some way a savior or some kind of an achiever that would fix things. And I think that with the world that we live in today, there is this expectation, especially with the coming election, that someone would come and fix things, either in our personal lives, on a personal level, or more on a national level, or on a global level. And so there is this expectation, and Cain, I think, can feel it. Cain has been born. He is named. I have gotten from the Lord. I have achieved. And so he has this amazing expectations on him and she bore again in this time verse 2 his brother Abel now Abel was a keeper of sheep but Cain was a tiller of the ground notice the details here keeper of the sheep a shepherd Abel is a shepherd he is someone that is just gleaning from the ground he is not what he is not like his brother who is actually a farmer what does Cain's profession remind you of think for a moment what is Cain doing isn't he doing the same thing that his father and his mother were cursed to do to by the sweat of their brow reap from the ground to till the ground until they die and that they're and then they would return back to the dust where they came this is what Cain was doing Cain was actually in a program where he was working and his work was to achieve. I'm going to get to the point here in a moment. And in the process of time, and that, those words tell us that there was a, there was a process. There was a timeline. Uh, some biblical teachers believe that, that during the time when Adam and Eve were in the garden and when they had failed and they were uh, clothed with the skins of animals, that there was the shedding of blood, that God actually taught them what was happening that God was teaching Adam and Eve that because of sin, 
blood has now to be shed, there has to be a sacrifice for your covering, spiritually and physically. And so in Adam and Eve's mind, there this understanding of redemption already existed. Because some commentators are asking, how did Abel understand to bring the sacrifice that he brought? I believe that God it was very communicative to Adam and Eve and also to Cain before, he, before this event. That Cain and Abel understood the mind of God and that Cain and Abel were sinners. The two brothers, the two firstborn men in the world that had fallen and that had been lost to sin. Remember that when Adam and Eve fell, the entire universe just went into total, total chaos. The whole balance between man and his relationship to his creation, man to animals, totally changed at that moment. That creation and the authority and the love that creation had for mankind had changed. And now animals were afraid of man and that they would be in fear and would run away. Imagine that during the millennial, when Jesus Christ comes and reigns for a thousand years, that curse will be lifted and we'll be able to interact with all the animals. That would be so cool. That would be so amazing. But Cain and Abel here are sinners and they are in this new world by themselves and they are in a place where it says in a process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. So we see here that there is a moment where they were to bring an offering to the Lord. Cain brings an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fats. Okay, I want to explain that in a minute. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell, meaning that he had a really bad look. (laughs) He was really disappointed that God rejected his offering. Why did that happen? What is happening here? Well, when I look at Cain, I look at an achiever. I think of a person who is an achieving individual. I think that in the United States, we live in a very achieving culture, don't we? It really is all about achievement. What have you achieved? What have you done in your life? I think when men get to a certain age in their, you know, in their mid-40s or whatever, I don't know what that age is, they go through this thing where they are wondering, what have I achieved? They get on the other side. They say, I'm on the other side of my life. What have I achieved? And they really, it's a big thing. Guys go through this. Uh, They go through this. And if you're a Christian and you're in ministry, you could go through this in ministry as well. You could get like, where, what have I, you know, what have I achieved? And where is my, where's my legend? Where's my heritage? You know? And I think that men can get into this if they're not secure in who they are in Jesus Christ. And we can get into this achievement mode or sacrifice mode where we are really trying to produce something for God because we get insecure about who we are in Jesus Christ. And so Cain here is very dis- disappointed that his, his offering was rejected. And as achievers, and I think my family, the Moore family, uh, we come from, uh, you know, sometimes you hear stories about your, your, your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, and how they lived their lives. And it seems to me that they were high achievers. It seems to me that the Moore family were high achievers. We just achieved. We wanted to achieve. My dad's family just has all these successful people, incredibly successful people. And they were high achievers. And this achievement mindset that 
Cain had. Cain, I think, was born, when he was born into this world, I'm trying to think of his psychology a little bit, maybe was starting to function from a sense of deficit, that I am a sinner. I do not have what it takes to meet my parents' expectations. Maybe my mother thinks I'm going to be some savior. Maybe she wasn't thinking that. But at any rate, Cain was an achiever. And this achievement mentality produces two kinds of classes of people. Number one, the successful, the achievers, the people that have arrived. You know, just take a look at my house, look at my car, look at this, look at that, look at my job, look at my career. This is what I've, look at my kids, look at grandkids. This is what I've achieved. And we've been made by God to have that sense. But there's a sense of achievement that that can create two kinds of people. Successful people that, have, that say, I have made it. And the second kind of group of people, the underachievers, those that do not succeed or those that feel they are underprivileged. Two classes of people. And don't we see this all the time? Class warfare, right? <coughs> the underachievers, the underdogs trying to reach the, reach the level of the, the high and the privileged. And this can produce an achievement complex. And I think that Cain was, was in this. He was in this mode where he felt that due to the burden of expectation, he was functioning in something that was, of course, not the abundance of God's grace. As a Christian, when we begin to function under achievements, trying to keep up with the Joneses, you ever hear that statement? Keeping up with so-and-so or keeping up with you know, friends or other people that you know, trying to produce or project or to prop up a certain image because of a sense of insecurity, we begin to start thinking in very dangerous grounds. And that can produce an achievement complex. And when we live in this achievement complex, two things will happen. Number one, false and unreal expectations impact all of our relationships. You know, if I'm living as an underachiever or if I'm living as an achiever, it's going to impact all my relationships. That creating an environment of demand that you have to be like me, whether I'm this or that. Okay? Whenever we begin to live under any kind of standard that is not a standard of God's grace and God's love and God's care and God's provision, then we're going to begin to live under pressure. We're going to live under a frustration index. You may look at your life and say, you know what? I'm at the halfway point. I'm at the, this point or whatever point. And I'm looking at my friends, people that I grew up with. And I'm, I'm kind of looking like I'm a little under the achiever line. Or I'm at the overachiever line. And when we start thinking like that, we are thinking outside of God's minds. And we can't think that way because that is outside of the way God wants us to think. So what happens is the first thing is we get false, unreal expectations on other people. For example, if I'm a parent and I, have feel, I feel that I've achieved in some way, maybe spiritually or, or, or in my career or in some way I feel I've achieved, I, look, I can look at my kids or my grandkids or my siblings or my other folks, other people in my family and put an undue, undue, unreasonable expectation on them that they have to be like me. And isn't this really outside of the mind of God's love? Richard Leahy, an anxiety specialist, said this, the average high school kid today has the same level of anxiety 
as the average psychiatric patient in the early 1950s. <laughs> a little pressure there, huh? I mean, kids today, they're under pressure. They're under some incredible pressure. I mean, pressure that they did not, that we did not have, and that what our parents did not have. There is so much pressure on young people today to be at a certain level. Imagine what you and I went through in high school, and then multiply that by a thousand or whatever, and that's what our kids are facing. The second result that can happen when we have an achievement complex is that this relational demands, when we are demanding people to be like us, creates what is called, don't get lost in the terminology here, I'll explain it, relational detachment. It means that my, when I demand some, from someone something, I am actually wanting to include them, but actually I'm pushing them away. Do you know what I'm saying? When I say to, my, when I say to someone, you know what? You just got to get your act together, get your life together, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, do this and do that, and just knock off your whining and be like me. What's that going to do to that individual? Well, it could actually put them in one of those two modes. It'll actually create a relational detachment. And this is what happens when we have marital issues or when we have family problems. When we put any kind of a standard that is outside of God's grace and God's finished work on the cross, what will happen is that we start pushing people away, right? We, start, we, are, we just notice, I don't know why that person's not talking to me anymore. You know, I gave him some advice that really would have helped me. And so I just, want to, I just want to wrap it up with this, that Cain's sin, let's look at what Cain did. What was his problem? Cain was in a system of performance. And, you know, performance is a mindset. It's a mindset that equates our identity and our value directly to what we're doing. Okay? Performance means that, you know what? If I'm making... Well, if I'm doing this in my life, you can, put, you can fill in the X's, right? You can fill in the blanks. If I'm doing this or this, then I've arrived. And that is my identity and my value. And I'm an important person. I'm a valuable person. I'm doing what my grandparents always wanted me to do, and I feel good about myself. The church that I was just pastoring in Philadelphia, and um, they send all their greetings down here to you guys. Uh, my assistant pastor, who is a millennial, is now pastoring that church. That's going to be fun to see how that goes. <laughs> He's awesome, by the way. I met him when he was 17, and, and I said, if you can put up with my style, you're going to do well. <laughs> you're going to do okay. He's doing good. And my church, you know, in my church, when I took that church over, and it was actually like a replant of a church that had started, uh, there was some el- elderly people there, and they were, you know, let's not put an age group there. <laughs> Some of us would fit that, 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 uh, that, that, that place. But they said to me, one woman told me, she said, um, she goes, uh, I used to be so active in the church. And because of my health and my condition, she had Crohn's disease. She said, I can't, I can't get out and I can't do what I used to do. She would get all dressed Sunday morning. She'd get up really early, get all dressed, get ready to go to church. And then she'd start really feeling bad physically. And then she just, she couldn't go. And I remember um, just a precious lady of God, uh, she said to me, she goes, and, and this is just a very, you know, well, you know, just a well-to-do person. And I just couldn't believe what she said. She said, she goes, I don't feel like I'm valuable. I don't feel like I'm useful. That's what the word, she goes, I don't feel like I'm useful. 
I said, why not? She goes, because I'm not doing anything in the church. And it dawned on me that many times when we face, our, when we face circumstances where we are not able to do what Cain did, we feel very useless, don't we? I remember when I had a back issue for six months, I was just, I was just down. And you know, my, my wife nursed me back to health and avoided all those surgeries and everything. And I just remember having to crawl across the room to use the bathroom. And I just remember thinking, boy, do I feel like I'm not a spiritual help to anybody right now. You know, this is what performance does. This is what performance does in our mentality. It creates a sense that success equals life and failure equals death. And that's why you hear of these huge, big money-making individuals. When they fail or they mess up, they jump off of a bridge and they kill themselves. Because their whole philosophy in life is performance and their value and their total understanding of their, of their value as an individual is equated to what they've accomplished. When we worship at the altar of performance, and make no mistake, performance is a form of worship. We spend our lives frantically propping up images and reputations. Does that sound like Facebook a little bit? Somebody said on Facebook the other day, they said to me, or they didn't say to me, but they said to the Facebook world, I hope, how do they say that? Uh, I hope your life is as fun as you tell everybody it is on Facebook. <laughs> I thought that was really good. Performance caught makes us live in a constant state of anxiety, fear, and resentment until we end up heavily medicated in the hospital or just really, really unhappy. That's, I'm, just, I'm just quoting someone right there. That we, when we live in performance, when we live in the mentality of Cain, that I'm going to just get the best of the earth. I'm going to gather the best. This is what I've grown. This is what, from, the, from my own sweat and my own labor, I've produced this, and I'm going to bring this to God. This is my actual best. And I'm going to bring this into a, into a, um, uh, a practical point here. This is the way many of us think about our Christianity and our walk with God, is that if I can produce the best for God, and just drum up all of this awesomeness and just give it to God, God's going to be really happy with me at the Bema seat, at the judgment seat of Christ for the believer. And we have, and you know, maybe we, we say, well, that's not theologically correct. And we say, but maybe down, deep down inside on a subconscious level, there is that platform of thinking that I've got to be doing something for God. I've got to be improving myself. I've got to be getting better. I've got to be overcoming this and overcoming that. When we do that, we are always going to be living in a sense of fear, resentment, and anxiety. What does God want? God rejected Cain's offering because he was just offering something that God could have done himself. God could have, God actually created that. God, uh, he made uh, the crops. He made all of these grains. He he didn't need Cain to do that. Abel brings an offering to God of something that he could not have done himself. He brings a lamb, and he brings the fat. Why does this mention the lamb and the fat? Because in Numbers chapter 18, one of Moses' offerings that he commanded that the priests bring was the firstborn and the fat thereof. The fat meaning that most pleasant-tasting part 
of the sacrifice. What does God require of us in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6? God does not require sacrifice on our part. Well, we're out there working hard for God, and we're trying to get the kudos and just get those kudos and those likes from God so that we can prop up our image and say, this is what I've done for God. What God wants is mercy. God rejoices in mercy. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 7, Jesus says the same words. He said, if you would have understood that God does not desire sacrifice but mercy, then you would have not killed the innocent. When we live in this achievement mentality, innocent people are being run over by a religious machine. I'm going to finish with this. Abel's theology was already embedded by what God had, what, what he had learned from, his, from God and his parents. Faith, and this is what he learned, and I want to finish with this. Faith, faith, faith in God, trusting God, when we don't see what God is doing or what God is going to do, just trusting his word is the only non-meritorious system of perception in the world today. It's the only way you're going to understand your life is when we just trust God for the details. There are things that are happening today. Why did that happen in Dallas? Uh, Maybe we don't have all the answers, but we can trust God for what is happening. We can pray. Why do certain things happen in our life when we pray this way and just the opposite happens? Because God has a plan, and he's working all things in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29, to work together for good for us. Because if we are on some kind of achievement system, everything that works together for bad... (laughs) We want to try to fix, right? We want to try to fix it and make it better and then just make it so that it's good for us. But what we can do is we can trust God and say, you know what? God has an, un- there's an unseen, unknown factor of God's handing the hand that is moving that we can't see. Faith is what pleases God. Trusting God means that I'm never, faith means this, that Abel, was able to bring that sacrifice trusting that God was never going to make him earn what he plans to give us. I want to say that again. And just if you remember one thing from this message tonight, just remember this. Faith means that I'm trusting God to give me something that I could never earn. It means that God's going to give us something that he, he plans to give us. When we look at the world and the way it works, it's very Darwinistic, isn't it? The survival of the fittest. I'm learning if you drive on Route 45, that's the way that goes. The survival of the fittest. It's amazing. And I thought uh, Philly drivers were... <coughs> drivers here are good. I mean, you, get, you just got to stay out of the left lane. You can't be cruising in the left lane. You just get out of that left lane and, and just keep, you know, keep moving. Faith means that I'm never going to have to earn what God plans to give us. Abel understood that there was no way that he would ever be able to qualify for God's grace. He just gave God what he had already given him. I remember a remember those science projects you had to do when you were in school? Not science projects, but like show and tell. These big projects where you had to make something and you know, you and your dad would work on this or you and your mom would work on it and you'd bring it to school and it'd be kind of a contest. You know, all the kids would judge like, you know, that was the best one and I remember we were doing this uh my dad and I made this elaborate electronic just this thing with this uh, little city that had like switches that the lights would turn on. It was just phenomenal. We just spent hours and hours doing it, and we 
had to bring it in in pieces and we brought it to the school and somebody else brought those paper mache volcanoes remember those baking soda you ever, has anyone ever done, a, done any of those yeah. <laughs> okay this guy brought it in it was just fascinating he put the stuff in there and it just kind of bubbled over and just made a big mess on the floor and somebody else had something else and and uh, some really creative stuff that people had made. And I remember this one girl came into class with a small box, and you could hear something inside a little bit. We, nobody knew what, what it was. And when it was her turn, she, she came to the front, and she just took the lid off the box, and it was a chinchilla. Do you know what those are? It's an animal that is, looks like you know, a rabbit and a squirrel. And... We remember, I remember seeing that. We were all little kids. And the whole class, we were just amazed at this animal. We had never seen anything like it before. It was a chinchilla. It, was like a, it looked like a squirrel and a rabbit just merged or became mutated in some way. And it was just amazing. And it was so happy. It was jumping around in the cage. And I remember all the kids, we all got up and looked at that cage. And we were just amazed. And, you know, the volcano was over there. My amazing electronic thing was over there. Nobody was looking at that. I just remember thinking that how God really just delights in the simple things that he's already done for us. And whenever we face threatening circumstances and whenever we face that sense of deficiency, like I don't got what it takes. Do you ever feel that way? I don't got what it takes to do this. How many of you have ever felt that way? None of you? Wow, some amazing people here. Okay, two honest people here. Whenever you feel that way, just understand that you already have all that it takes in Jesus Christ. That he has made us able ministers. He has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He has given us everything that we need before we need it. And whenever you face, and that's why we need the word of God so much. That's why we need to hear the word on a constant basis. Because what we're hearing tonight is going to be something that is, is going to be part of our toolbox for the week that's coming ahead of us. And I just want to finish with that, that when we face that moment where we feel like Cain, like we need to achieve to be accepted, we just understand that we can achieve all of it and we're going to wind up being rejected. That's going to be rejected by God because God does not desire sacrifice, desires mercy. We just say, God, this is what I got. I got Jesus and I got the promises. And I got prayer. And I got the body of Christ. And I got your plan. And I got your history. I got your faithfulness in my life. And when we face our day and our life like that, we're just going to be amazed at how far we go with God. And I'm just going to finish with that. And let's just close with prayer. Father, we thank you for all that we have in Jesus Christ. We have uh, all wisdom. We have all peace. We have all joy. Sometimes we don't feel happy, but we know that joy is way beyond emotion. It's much deeper. It's just a still conviction inside that means that everything's okay and that we can hope. And Lord, we just want to pray for folks here tonight. Maybe someone just needs a special touch from God in this simple place, in this simple room that we're meeting in. Maybe someone needs an answer from, from you in prayer. Maybe someone needs a provision on a physical level or they need to be touched and healed. Lord, we pray tonight for families, for our kids, 
for our summer that's before us. We think of Austin going to Bible school. April's going to Bible school in Baltimore. We pray for them both for just the details to work out. Father, we think of Johnny and thank you, God, for the work that's come his way and Cheryl and Sarah and just those that you've provided for. We think of John that's moving to Utah soon. Just pray for all of those details, God, that you would give him just peace and great expectation for what you're going to do there for him. Lord, just bless our week before us. Uh, We thank you that he is for us, that God, you are for us. And help us not to forget, Lord, who we are in Jesus Christ and that we don't need to achieve but just to rest and understand that it's completed and that we can just trust you. We thank you, God, and we just present Jesus Christ to you, Lord, as our offering tonight. And if you're here tonight and maybe you haven't received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior,